Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to join along in your Bible or in the Pew Bible. First, Mark 1, 14 through 20. The calling of the first disciple. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The second reading is from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Jesus predicts his own death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God and Father, as we come now to your word, Pray that you would be near to us, speak and apply it to our hearts. Be with us sinners as we sit under its authority. And be with me a sinner as I seek to preach. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this is our second in our sermon series for Advent, which is a very abnormal Advent sermon series, I realize. But what we're trying to do in these sermons is to say it is often noted as people talk about Christmas, um, how easy it is in the bustle of the holiday season to lose sight of Jesus, of Christ in Christmas. And if that is true of Christmas, it is equally true of life more generally, that in the bustle of Christianity, it is easy for us to lose sight of Jesus. And so what we're doing in these four sermons is trying to be reminded of the way that Jesus stands at the center of everything. And this morning, we're going to start with a discussion of a word that you hear in a lot of churches, which is the gospel, right? We're going to talk about the gospel. And so if someone asked you, what does that word mean, right? What would you say? How would you define that? What is the gospel? And let me first 
start by offering what I think are a couple of incomplete answers that many of us might be tempted to give. They're not wrong exactly, but I think they're, they're incomplete. The first incomplete answer is to say that the gospel is that you need to uh, believe in Jesus so that you go to heaven when you die. Honestly, if you ask most Americans that had some sense of the word, they would give a definition like that. And here's the thing about that, that the gospel is that you should trust in Jesus and you go to heaven when you die. Um, That is a true statement, but it has at least two big issues. One is that it is not, properly speaking, good news, which is what the gospel is supposed to be. The gospel is the good news of what God has done, and that's really a message about what you're supposed to do. It's good advice, if it's anything. And secondly, more deeply, its problem is that it doesn't actually explain very much about how we should then, therefore, live in the world. You can hear that and think, okay, cool, so I'll trust in Jesus and I'm going to go to heaven, but now what? (laughs) Why am I supposed to do things? What's supposed to change about my life? And people will tell you something's supposed to change about your life, but it often feels really disconnected from the gospel, right? It's like, just pray this prayer, and you can be a Christian and go to heaven. That's all you have to do, and you pray the prayer, and then they're like, Oh, and also, you have to do all of these other things now. <laughs> and you're kind of like, wait a minute, what? where did that come from? So I think that's an incomplete answer. Another way of defining the gospel, maybe a better way, is what you might say is that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. And again, that is true, and that is actually a better definition than the first one, because it at least is good news instead of good advice. It is a statement about Jesus and what he's done. But it still leaves us with a question of, okay, but then how is that supposed to change how I live in the world? Uh, The poet W.H. Auden famously quipped, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, surely the world is admirably arranged. So, you know, it might even make us think, well, why then, if Jesus died for my sins, doesn't that just encourage me to do what I want and live the way I want and live? So what is the gospel? And and so what I want to do this morning then is say, okay— If those definitions of the gospel have issues, maybe there is a bigger, broader way to talk about the gospel that scripture gives us that will help us better understand what the good news is. And that's what I want us to do. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to just look at this big idea, see it in the gospel of Mark and some other places in the Bible, and talk about it and what it means. And then we're going to talk about how that changes how we live in a couple of different ways. So first of all, the big idea is this. Big idea, what is the gospel, is that the gospel is the kingdom. The gospel is the kingdom of God. So in Mark 1, we have the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And if you pick up in verse 14, it says that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So here we go. Jesus is here. He's preaching the gospel. What is he preaching? Verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the gospel, as summarized here by Mark, is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is here. And then Jesus tells people in response to that gospel to repent and believe. We'll come back to that second part. But the gospel is the kingdom. That's actually very common um, in the New Testament. It's not just a one-off statement. So, for example, Matthew says it like this in Matthew 4. He says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus goes around declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. 
Again, we're not defining it yet, but some people, they try to make a distinction because of how frequently in the Gospels you hear it talked about as the kingdom. They'll say, well, this was the thing Jesus was preaching, and we're actually, the gospel that we Christians teach is not actually the same as Jesus, people have argued. But if you read Matthew 24, Jesus says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel that we're supposed to preach to all of the nations is the gospel of the kingdom. All right. What does that mean? (laughs) Right? If the gospel is the kingdom, why does that matter? Well, first we should note that idea of the kingdom of God, it is rooted in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, you have this idea that Israel is the people and the kingdom of God, and that their job in the world is to sort of stand as God's special set-apart nation, that the way they live together, the way they treat each other and interact with the world is supposed to show the world God's intentions for it. And that is true, but it's also very incomplete in the Old Testament. And so you always have this hope that God's kingdom is going to more fully come to earth. For example, in Daniel 2, uh, the prophet says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That's the Old Testament idea. Or in the New Testament, you see Jesus explain it at times. For example, um, in Matthew 6, when he teaches us the Lord's Prayer, We pray every Sunday when we recite the Lord's Prayer together, we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, um, because it's so rote, we can kind of miss what it's saying. So here's the the Eric Tunges translation. That's a better translation, to be clear, but let me just restate it in slightly different words to try to help you feel it. Um, The the original translation is better, not mine. (laughs) But it's, Our Father in heaven, make your name holy. Make your kingdom come. Make your will be done. Make these things true on earth as they are in heaven. That's what you pray when you pray the beginning part of the Lord's Prayer there. And what you're praying, in essence, is, Lord, you are king in heaven. Make your kingdom come to earth, right? Make your name be set apart and your will be done here on earth the way it is in heaven. So taking all that together, here's the big idea of the gospel. God made this world good. He made it to be a place of joy and bounty, peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word that expresses this idea of peace and flourishing where everything is the way it's meant to be. That's how he makes the the world, and that, in a sense, is the kingdom of God in its original sense. But then human beings rebel against God, and so the kingdom gets shattered here on earth. And what we have is this broken world now as a result, but God is a king, a mighty king, and so he's going to bring that kingdom back to earth again to restore things to that shalom, that joy and bounty and rightness under the rule of himself. And that is the kingdom. And the good news of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is that that is starting to arrive. That the kingdom is actually starting to come true on earth. So then we might ask, how is it coming true? Well, from these two texts this morning, we get a couple of points. First, we recognize that Jesus brings the kingdom. That part of his mission that we read about in the Gospels is that Jesus is here to bring the kingdom of God. And that is where the cross and resurrection fit into the story. We said at the beginning that saying Jesus died for our sins isn't a full enough expression of the Gospel, but it is essential. We can't lose sight of that. So Mark 8.31 
He says that Jesus started to teach his disciples that the Son of Man, which is one of these kingly titles, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So just to be clear, the, the cross really matters in this story, right? But here's the reason it matters. What's going on, um, well, first of all, I mean, there's some people who talk about the gospel of the kingdom and they talk about it as if therefore like the cross and resurrection aren't things we should be proclaiming to people. And that's wrong. In fact, when Peter tries to talk Jesus out of the cross in our text, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God. So the cross is essential. But here's what's going on in the cross. Um, if you look over in Colossians chapter 1, there the Apostle Paul is using the same language of kingdom. And so what he says is that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul's talking about the kingdom of God that's coming to earth. But what he's saying particularly is that you have this worldly kingdom, and that's where all of us belong, left to ourselves. We're a part of the kingdom of darkness. And in Jesus, what God is doing is coming and bringing us out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And the way he's doing that, if you keep reading in Colossians, is through the cross. So Paul says, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you to be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So in Jesus' death on the cross, what he does is he works to ransom and pay for our sin in a way that brings us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Which means we can't cut the cross out, right? The kingdom without the cross isn't good news. Saying the king is coming is not good news if you're his enemy, right? So we need the cross in order to make it good news. But we also need the kingdom for the cross to make sense. Because the reason Jesus is dying is in order to bring us into his kingdom of light. And if we don't have that context of the kingdom, then we don't really understand what the cross is doing. So Jesus brings the kingdom. And then the other thing we need to understand is that Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom in the sense that it's not just some thing that he works, but it's something that arrives with him. You can see that in Jesus' memorable statement in Mark 8, where he says, Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So there Jesus puts his own sake and the good news of the kingdom side by side. He says, you know, this is, if you lose your life for me and for the good news, those things caught up together, you will save it. Or back in Mark 1, it says Jesus goes out and starts to preach the gospel, and it says that his gospel proclamation is about the kingdom. And then immediately after that, you see him going and proclaiming this to these specific people he calls his disciples. And there what he says is he goes to the, these two fishermen, and he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So there the gospel call is just come, follow me, Jesus says. So it's not um, some kingdom as a thing separate to Jesus, but it's come to me. The thing that we need to recognize is that one of the foundational ideas about Jesus coming to bring the kingdom is that it's coming because Jesus is the king. He is the king, and in a real sense, the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand when Jesus comes is the good news that Jesus himself is here. Let me show you another story. In Luke 17, it says that Jesus is asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come. 
And he answers them and says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, if you have an old translation, that last phrase might say is within you. And a lot of people, I think, take that in the midst of you as meaning sort of in your hearts or something like that. That's how a lot of people have read it. But that doesn't work. A, because Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and if there's one group of people in the Gospels who definitely don't have the kingdom of God in their hearts, it's the Pharisees. And B, because he then immediately starts talking about the kingdom coming in this very visible way, if you keep reading in that chapter. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of you in the sense of the kingdom of heaven is standing right here, guys, right? So the Pharisees are all gathered around talking to Jesus, and they're like, what's the sign of the kingdom going to be? And Jesus is like, it's here. <laughs> it's right here in the middle of you. It's me because I am the king. Every Christmas should be a reminder to us that what we're celebrating is the arrival of the king. When we say Jesus Christ, I think most of you know this, but Christ isn't the last name of Jesus. Christ is a title. It means anointed one, king. The king has come. All right. So, that's the big idea. That's a lot of ground to cover. Let me sum it up before we then talk about applying it to our lives. All right? Um, what is the good news? What's the gospel? Well, one way to answer that in a complete way is to say that the gospel is that the king has arrived, baby, that the kingdom has come, that Jesus the king has come and brought the kingdom to earth, that he has secured it through his death and resurrection. Through his death, he's called and drawn us into that kingdom. Through his resurrection, he's defeated and is overcoming the enemies of that kingdom. But the good news is that the kingdom has arrived and that we then are, are called by that gospel to enter into the kingdom and become a part of it. That's the good news. So then with that said, with that big idea put out there, I want to talk about how that affects how we live and how we think about our lives. I'm going to talk about how that changes the way we think about the world. And as we do that, I'm going to suggest three diagnostic questions for us. Three questions for us to ask ourselves as we wrestle through then, are we living like this is true? Are we living as a part of that kingdom? First, let's go back to something we talked about earlier, though. We said one of the problems with the way a lot of people answer the question, what is the gospel, is that it doesn't answer for us the question, why should I live any differently? The gospel sounds like it's just permission for us to live however we want. So here's the question. If the good, the good news is that the kingdom of God has come, does that change how we live in the world? And the answer there is absolutely. What does it mean to live in a kingdom? Even here on earth, right? If you are a citizen of a country, what does that mean? That means that there is stuff that you're supposed to do, and that means that you actually sort of take that citizenship on as a part of your identity. Like, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of traveling abroad. You're in some foreign country, and— um, you know, and you're just moving through life there, and you run into someone else who's an American, right? The, the crazy thing, if you ever do that, is that you might, in the United States, you might live in completely different parts of the country, and you might have different politics and different skin color. You might be radically different in the context of the United States. But when you're like France or Japan or whatever, you're like, friend, you know, fellow American, because you feel that you have this fundamental identity in common. And that's because being a citizen of an earthly country shapes our identity. And the same thing is true of the kingdom of heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is supposed to do. The apostle Paul 
describes us using that kind of citizenship language in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by in heaven, Paul doesn't mean like in this place we go when we die. He means that Jesus is the king, and right now he's reigning in heaven. But his reign, his kingdom has not fully come to earth. So we're citizens of the kingdom of God in the sense that we're citizens of that heavenly kingdom. That's where our citizenship is. And that means that above any earthly citizenship, that's where our belonging and identity lies. And then Paul says, therefore, you need to live differently. He goes on in Philippians 3. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Which is to say, he's like, we're citizens of this other country. And he's writing to these people who are newer in that citizenship. And he says, so watch me, watch these other mature saints, and understand that this is the way you're supposed to live as a citizenship of God's kingdom. If we say we are a part of the kingdom of God then, of course, that means that we have to seek to live in a way that is trying to obey him and follow the things that he calls us to do. It is insane to say, Jesus is my king, but I'm not going to follow his commandments. That just makes no, that's not what you do with kings, right? That's not how kingship works. If we say we're a part of God's kingdom, then, of course, we have to have a different loyalty than we do if we're a part of the kingdom of the world. We can't say, Jesus is my king, but my loyalties lie with the things that are opposed to him. It just doesn't make sense. If we're part of God's kingdom, then of course we're supposed to gather and be a community together because that's, you know, we are citizenships of that, citizens of that kingdom, and that's why we're doing this thing. And of course we're supposed to have a new identity and way of thinking about our lives. Do you see how that means that the good news includes that call for us to live differently? It includes the answer to that question of why should I change how I live? Because we are being welcomed into a kingdom. So then here's the first question that we need to be asking, if that is true, which is, does the world find us boring? Do people in the world find us boring when they interact with us on our day-to-day lives? Now, I want to be careful here, because there is a wrong way you can take that question. In the first place, there is a level of similarity we should have with people, right? I still have an earthly identity. I'm still a part of an earthly, you know, country and things like that. I have connections with other human beings. And sometimes Christians try to make that foreignness about things it's not supposed to be. You can see that in the real extreme, right? Like the, you know, everyone wearing the denim jumpers and skirts kind of thing. But, or like, I remember um, years ago talking with um, an older um, lady who, who she said to me, well, if Christians, if Christians dance and play cards, then how in the world will the world see them as any different, right? And that's, that's not what we're saying by foreign. Right? It's not just that we invent ways to be different from the world. We're trying to follow God's word. But there is a real sense in which we should move through the world in a way that causes the world to say, like, huh, I don't quite understand that. Again, think about if you, you go live in France, right? And let's say you're really good at speaking French and, you know, you kind of look like you fit in there, right? And so you might move through the world and in passing people would just assume you're some French person. But the thing is— even if you've been there for some years, you're always going to be a little bit odd. You're, gonna, you're not going to quite fit. And you've noticed this in the reverse. If you've ever interacted with somebody who's lived here but is from another country, there will be certain things, like I have a good friend who's Australian, and there are certain ways of thinking about the world he has, and I'm just like, I think that's just because you're Australian. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't think we, we quite, um, we're quite processing this the same way. And that should be what it's like as we move through the world as Christians. 
our priorities, the ways we think about the world should just be kind of different because we have different priorities, because we're living for a different king. The, the things that we, that we worry most about in life, right, in terms of our connection with Christ and our connection with other people and relationships, it should just look different than the priorities of the world. There should be something that's just a little boring about life. And if there isn't, then we need to go back and ask whether we've really understood what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. So that's the first diagnostic question. Do people find us boring? All right, let's move on then. We also saw earlier that Jesus' response he calls for is to repent and believe the gospel. In Mark 1, remember the message he says is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. So what do those words mean? We need to talk about that. On one level, the technical meaning is this. Repenting means changing your mind. That's actually what the word literally means. Changing your mind about something. And in scripture, it particularly means changing your mind about sin. That, you know, you, you were looking at sin one way in the world as pleasing and desirable and good. And that repenting means instead you change your mind to agree with God. And to recognize that it's destructive and ugly and wrong. Um, so that's repenting. And then believing at root... The word just means trusting God. It doesn't just mean believing facts, but it means believing God in the sense of believing his promises, putting our faith and our trust in him. And that's what Jesus is calling people to do. But then what does that look like if the gospel is the kingdom? So in that narrow way of talking about the gospel, right, where it's just like trust in Jesus and go to heaven when you die and get your sins forgiven, we tend to emphasize repentance and belief in terms of a single one-time event. We tend to focus on it as this moment of conversion where you have this sort of divine transaction. And that's why some churches really focus on getting those moments of conversion, right? You've got the altar calls or the, the meetings that are meant to generate this moment where you repent and believe. But if the gospel is the kingdom, then repentance and belief is not primarily focused on a single moment where you make this transaction. But instead, it's focused on a way of living with Jesus as your king. It means a transformed way of living in and thinking about the world. To be a citizen of God's kingdom means that we agree with our king about what is good and evil. And so we, that is repentance. To say, yes, you know, Jesus, I agree with you that this is what I am called to do and that I fall short of it and that I ought to have these priorities and there's ways that I don't. And therefore, I'm living in this posture of repentance, seeking to change my mind about sin. And belief means, yes, Jesus, um, if you are the king, then I'm trusting in you as my king, to be my champion and deliverer and representative and to lead me and watch over me. And so we are agreeing with Jesus as our king. And the thing to recognize about that is that both of those things are not descriptions of something you do once, but something that is ongoing throughout the whole of our life. Now, that does not mean that some of us don't have these momentary experiences that are significant. That's fine. Some of us can remember those times, right? And frankly, some of us might have a number of those experiences through life where we, in a deeper or fuller way, are like, oh, like, I really need to repent in this way or believe in this way. But some of us don't have those experiences. And part of the good news is that that's fine, that that sort of gradual process of growth and belief that many of us go through in our lives that's also a part of it, because if the gospel is the kingdom, then the root question we need to ask is, are we living with Jesus as king? 
Are we living in a way that is repenting of our sin and believing in him right now? And that then brings us to the second question, which is, are we repenting and believing? Are we doing this daily? Am I daily changing my mind to agree with Jesus's? Am I daily trusting in his promises and hoping in his salvation? And probably the best way to answer that question is to ask whether you are taking time specifically in your day to do these things. Now, you might say, wait a minute, like I thought you said it's a way of life. And that's true. Ultimately, repentance and belief are this thing that's supposed to define the whole of our lives. But like, like being healthy is a lifestyle. But if you're like, because it's a lifestyle, that means I'm not going to set aside time to exercise, right? It doesn't work. And in the same way, repentance, belief are a lifestyle. But what we're called to do is to set aside time in our lives to specifically try to do those things. I'm not going to give you some method. I'm not going to give you some specific, here's the list you got to do. But what I'd encourage you to do this week is to say, each day, am I finding some time to repent, to confess my sins, to acknowledge the ways that I'm failing to live up to the calling of Jesus, and to apply the gospel to that? Am I taking some time to say, here are some wrong things I've done, here are some good things I'm failing to do, and to seek to recognize what Jesus calls you to, and rejoice in the forgiveness and grace that he gives you in that? And then, are you also finding some time to be reminded of God's truth? his promises. Some of that can come along with the repentance as you just remind yourself of the gospel, that God has brought his kingdom in Jesus through the cross that brings you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. But another big part of that uh, for most Christians as they grow in discipleship and following Jesus is why they tend to spend some time reading scripture or, you know, with God's word because it's a chance to be reminded of what's true and to then again put their trust in. So that's the second question. Are we daily finding space to repent and believe? And then one last way that the gospel of the kingdom should affect us. It should, under, it should transform how we think about discipleship is maybe the easiest way to put this. Discipleship. And that is a churchy word, right? You don't hear that very much in the world. But a disciple really just means a follower. That's what the word means. And even... In our world, to be someone's disciple means that you follow after that person and seek to live in the way that they live. Uh, even, you know, if you're a disciple of, of like Steve Jobs, which some people in our world seem to be, right? You're following him and trying to learn from him how to live and live in the way he lives. And that's what it means in Christianity, too. You can see the call to discipleship in both Mark 1 and Mark 8. In Mark 1, Jesus says to them, like we said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So two things there. First, he says, follow me, the invitation to join the Christian life. In a sense, the invitation to repent and believe is the same as that call to come follow after me. And then Jesus says, what's going to happen is that I'm going to actually then change how you live. They're out fishing for fish while Jesus is preaching the gospel. And Jesus says, I'm going to transform your way of life so that now you're fishing for fellow human beings. Or in chapter 8, Jesus proclaims his death which we saw. He teaches that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he describes his death. And then a couple of verses later, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, that same pattern. Jesus says, follow me, right? And particularly follow me in the sense that just as I am laying down my life and love, 
so you need to lay down your life in that. In our narrow view of the gospel that we talked about at the beginning, what often happens in that view is that the call to be a disciple, the call to follow Jesus, gets separated from the call to believe the gospel and become a Christian. We make kind of two classes of Christian. There's those who have sort of like prayed a prayer and, you know, and are going to go to heaven when they die. And then there's these other Christians that are really the serious ones. And they're the ones that are following Jesus and are living as disciples. If the gospel is the kingdom, though, that way of thinking just doesn't work. You can't get the benefits of the kingdom without having Jesus as king. You can't, there is no country on earth that says we've got two-stage citizenship. Stage one is, you know, you, you just come and you say, I want to be a citizen, and then we, like, give you, you know, all of the, like, social programs and help. And then stage two is where you're a citizen that has to pay the taxes and obey the laws, right? And, and like, you know, as long as you don't become a stage two citizen, you can get the benefits, but you don't have to obey the laws. That's, that's not how citizenship works. And that's not how citizenship works in the kingdom of heaven. To become a part of the kingdom means to follow the king and live with him as your king. You can't separate those things out. Now, to be clear, that does not mean that following the king is the thing that makes you the citizen, right? We are made citizens of that kingdom freely by God's grace. That's what the cross does. We, we you know, we repent and have faith and we're brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And you don't have to be, you know, you don't earn that. You don't, like, it's not that you... You're on probation living with Jesus as king, and then eventually you get part of the kingdom. As soon as you trust and believe in him, you are welcomed into his kingdom. But that necessarily comes with the calling to follow after the king. And then the last—actually, just let me—that should be obvious when we talk about the idea of being a Christian, right? Like that word, as when it was originally used of the church, it means little Christ, <laughs> It means, like, you're supposed to be a sort of little representation of your king, Jesus, that you're following. That's the whole idea of it. All right. Then one last assessment question that we need to ask ourselves, which is, are we living as followers of Jesus? Are we living, following our king as his disciples right now? And that has to be present tense, because being a follower implies emotion means moving towards something, pressing into something in the present. And if I say, I follow a sports team, and you're like, oh, how was their game last week? And you're like, well, I didn't watch it. And you're like, well, how are they doing this season? And you're like, actually, it's been like years since I've, you know, really kept up with them. You're not following them, right? <laughs> it's a present tense thing. And that means that we need to ask ourselves whether we are following Jesus presently. That question comes to us both with a really challenging warning in some ways, but also with a good encouragement. First, the warning. One of the kind of tough realities of the gospel being the kingdom is that that means that there are plenty of people in the world that are wrong about where they stand in, in relationship to Jesus. <laughs> Remember, we said there's that two-stage idea where you kind of, you know, you get the sort of savior and then later you get the king. If that's not true, then there are a lot of people in the world who are deceived about where they fit. That if the gospel is the kingdom, then those who are not living in the kingdom um, aren't Christians in the sense of belonging to and being a follower of Jesus. Now to be clear, there's some nuance with that warning. All of us go through 
periods of life where we struggle and other periods of life where we're more assured of that. There are people who go through dark nights of the soul and wander. And people are in process, right? The fact that someone is sort of in process working through stuff with Jesus, that they're not, you know, you know that, 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 that it's messy, that's okay. But all of that said, the gospel of the kingdom does come with the warning that if we do not follow our king, that's kind of a, that's a scary thing. In Mark 8, Jesus says it. When he says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we should soberly examine ourselves. That's part of the question. Is this a thing that I am pressing into? Am I following Jesus? But it should also come with a great encouragement because the reason is that all you have to do is start following, you know, Jesus in order to then say, to start beginning that process, right? The idea of following is something that requires the present tense, but it also of necessity means that you aren't there. Steve Jobs is not a disciple of Steve Jobs, right? Like to be a disciple of Jesus means that you are in process of seeking to pursue Jesus. And so while there's a warning, which is that if you're not in that process, that's a thing that you need to be kind of worried about. If you are in that process, as imperfect and messy as it is, then that means that you are a disciple. That means that he is your king. Paul says it in Colossians 3 when he says, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So while we are called to live with Jesus as our king, it is imperfect that we are in some ways struggling, ineffectual citizens of the kingdom. It's his kingdom, and he's the one who will take care of it. So that's what I'm going to invite you then to reflect on, is that last question. Are we following our king? And then more broadly, all three of those questions together to just ask what it looks like for us to take the next steps of being citizens of that kingdom. What does it look like for me, where I am today, to grow a little bit more in that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? Because ultimately, that is the story of the world, and that is the story of Christmas, as we say. (laughs) The thing we celebrate on this holiday is that the king has come, that Jesus is here, that he has secured entrance into his kingdom by his cross, that he now rules as the king in heaven, and we are called to live as citizens here in these earthly outposts of that heavenly kingdom, and that when he returns, he will fully bring the kingdom to earth, that shalom and peace and goodness will be restored, and we will live as his subjects praising our king and enjoying him forever. That is the good news. Let's pray. King Jesus, I acknowledge that all of us fall short of full obedience to to your kingdom. I pray that you would help us all to grow in that discipleship and following you. Thank you for the grace that we have in your cross and the hope of life we have in your resurrection. Build us up as your disciples, until you come again. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.